0: Welcome to TMT's Unscripted Podcast. Are you ready to place your investment in virtual care? Today, guests discuss the newly published COVID-19 Telehealth Impact Study, exploring one year of telehealth experimentation developed by the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition, using data sets from 2 billion healthcare claims to inform healthcare leaders and policymakers. Get the skinny from physician, and patient perspectives on the impact of COVID-19 on telehealth with suggestions to right-size the cost of care. Tune in now to hear Dr. Francis Campion, Principal Digital Health Analyst at the MITRE Corporation, Dr. Steve Oman, Medical Director, Digital Products and Product Platform Strategy at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, and me, Torrice and I, founder and publisher of Telehealth and Medicine Today. Let's get right to it. Good morning, FX and Steve, and thank you both for talking to us this morning about the explosive emergence and adoption of telehealth in the United States. We've recently published the new COVID-19 Telehealth Impact Study. And before we hear your thoughts and findings about the research, can you first tell us what the impetus behind MITRE and Mayo Clinic founding the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition was.
1: Sure. uh, This is FX. I'm happy to comment on that. It it seems amazing the distance we've come over the last uh, year and a half, but it was last late February and early March when the Mayo Clinic and MITRE uh, discussed uh, the great challenges before us and decided to formed the healthcare coalition, the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition, which rapidly gained membership. We ultimately had over 1,000 member organizations, all from the private sector, ranging from healthcare systems to uh, uh, bio and pharma companies and many, many foundations, uh, universities participating. So the goal really was to figure out The challenges before us and begin solutioning immediately. Uh, As it turns out, telehealth was very obviously going to be part of the uh, of the solution set, and we quickly developed a work group related to telehealth. We had over fifteen different work groups from ventilators to uh, to PPE to uh, other aspects of uh, misinformation and and, uh, vaccines and such. But the telehealth. Uh, work group was started uh, back in uh, the first week of March, uh, 2020.
0: It sounds like it's been a uh, successful um, partnership. Uh, congratulations to you all.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: What do you expect to achieve with this study and series, and what impact might it have, or, or are we hoping that it has on U.S. healthcare policy?
2: I think, and this is Steve, I, I think that you know we wanted to take uh, advantage of a unique opportunity. I mean, prior to March of last year, telehealth existed, but it existed in low volumes and many providers weren't participating in to, to gain any uh, information about the uh, value for telemedicine and, and, and remote care delivery was going to take a long time. And now all of a sudden that the entire nation and world was was essentially forced to use telemedicine, it gave us an opportunity to study it. And, and, our, and our hopes were to shed light on the fact that so much of healthcare can be done in more convenient ways for our patients, and that we might be able to influence state level and national level policies Uh, to convert the regulatory environment to one that's much more favorable to allow patients better access to care using these tools.
0: Very important. Um, Particularly when you consider some of the the barriers and and we'll talk about those a little later. Um, Gentlemen, would you agree we've solved the awareness and adoption hurdles on both the PCP and patient sides since
1: COVID's onset? Uh, As a PCP myself, I'm I'm a general internist in a large group practice. I think we know now that telehealth is here to stay. Uh, Patients and providers alike have kind of seen uh, what's possible and it's gonna be hard to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. I am uh, like many physicians, had been thinking about telehealth, uh, but my practice wasn't promoting it. And so my first telehealth visits uh, for ambulatory care were uh, with the onset of the pandemic. Um, I had been part of a hospital group uh, delivering some acute care in the home uh, with a early phase uh, company uh, in the year prior to the pandemic. But uh, once the pandemic hit, uh, we scaled up what was a small, a small pilot program in pediatric telehealth to ultimately cover all eight hundred uh, physicians in our medical group. so uh, we're I'm very excited. my group's excited, and I know uh, Steve probably has some stories too from how the Mayo Clinic got, went from relatively low numbers to very high numbers.
2: yeah, I, I think that's right, FX and I think that uh, the the way the way you phrase raised the question is, Is awareness solved, I think that, you know, everyone's aware now that that telemedicine exists and and I agree with FX that I think by and large people are are assuming that it's going to be part of healthcare going forward. I think that we haven't solved complete awareness uh, around some of the best use cases uh, for it. And And that might differ in FX's practice for uh, primary care and, and continuity of care management versus you know my practice, which is subspecialty and referral-based. And I think we're still trying to, to hone in on, on the right patients and the right moments in their healthcare journey where telemedicine is optimal, and then the smooth transitions when in-person care is going to be necessary.
0: So, our next question um, uh, Where did you obtain your data set of over 2 billion, B as in billion, um, healthcare claims? And is it compliant? Uh, and the reason I ask is because there are a lot of privacy skeptics out there. Can you comment, please?
1: Sure. sure. Um, as I mentioned, the telehealth uh, work group was a voluntary effort as part of the, the COVID-19 healthcare coalition. And one of the uh, voluntary uh, participants was a company called Change Healthcare. Uh, Change Healthcare uh, manages the claims flow process between providers, between hospitals and physicians and the insurance company. So they're kind of a, um, a, a back office phenomenon that helps make sure claims are, are clean and complete uh, as they move uh, from the provider to the payer. And Change Healthcare uh, has this amazing breadth of, uh, of geography and is very involved with, the, with the healthcare claims of all types, but particularly the private insurance market. And we were just very fortunate that they were part of the coalition. And as soon as uh, the call and requests came out uh, from Steve and myself, uh, they were very willing to participate in a voluntary way. As it turns out, ch- during the pandemic, Change Healthcare was acquired by Optum. And so no, they're now part of the Optum family of uh, companies. But we were very, very uh, uh, fortunate to have Change Healthcare be a part of our research team. And indeed, they uh, are uh, very scrupulous about making sure the data set itself met all the privacy uh, and security standards to be sure we are HIPAA compliant. And our studies, uh, therefore, and all the forthcoming materials from them uh, have been completely uh, de-identified.
0: Good. I'm sure many people will be very glad to uh, to hear that FX. Um, a significant limitation of the data is that it didn't include Medicare and Medicaid indemnity claims. Um, how would the inclusion have impacted the outcomes, do you think?
2: I, I, well, I think that's, that's a good question. And, and FX, I, I'll be interested in your thoughts on it as well. But I, I think that it's, it's a very valid critique of, of, of the effort we put together, but it was really not something to overcome with what was available to us because those Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, claims come in on a different sc- time scale than the than the private uh, payers do but when you look at the, the study that we did and particularly around the patient survey aspect of it we we saw uh, an even distribution of patients across age groups including uh, Medicare eligible individuals and and there weren't large shifts in Acceptance, positivity, outcomes—those kind of things—from our patient-based survey. So, uh, it, it's not really clear how it would have changed the outcome of the study. Um, but it's—it's a—it's a valid question. FX, what, what do you think about that? Sure,
1: I guess it's a good point that we—the project itself, the telehealth impact study—is actually three studies. One is this large claims analysis. A second is a physician survey that was conducted during uh, July of 2020, that was relatively early in the pandemic, and then a patient survey, which spanned December, January, and early February of 2021. Uh, and so we've learned a lot from both the claims survey, the claims analysis and the two surveys about disposition position of, uh, of telehealth. When it comes to the physician practice, I'm sure Steve will agree with this, when we serve our patients in particular with telehealth, we were not differentiating between payers. And one of the fortunate things that we learned during the pandemic was that the, was that the regulatory uh, requirements were relaxed pretty much across the board. So we had both public and private payers using the same rules of engagement as far as which claims would be covered, uh, which modes of, of uh, telehealth transmission would be, would be appropriate for example, both private and Medicare paid for audio only or telephone only based uh, visits. And that was, that was something that didn't exist pre-pandemic. Um, and fortunately, we, can, we see these trends in both uh, public and private payers. So in our practice, uh, you know, we don't differentiate based on payer. And I think, so the things we learn about which specialties were using telehealth, which clinical problems were patients uh, presenting with for the telehealth, I think that's pretty consistent from public and payer perspectives. Uh, as Steve mentioned, wh- one of the things we were trying to do during the pandemic was to understand as telehealth was evolving and emerging during, the, during that, particularly the first year of the pandemic. And so we were publishing on our website these trends on a month to month basis and the data set from from Change Healthcare allowed for that. In particular, we were, we were reporting open claims, uh, meaning once the claim was processed by Change Healthcare between the provider and the payer, we became aware of it. Uh, so that's pretty early in, in a research uh, data flow for claims analysis. Uh, most people who, who read claims studies are used to seeing closed claim studies, and that often takes many months after the, after the claims, not only, not only the, the date of service has occurred, but the, the claim has already been paid. Uh, but we were fortunate for this study and this study design to be able to have an early data set, early flow. And that was critical for the learning that we needed during the pandemic. What we saw was providers were looking at the data, payers were looking at the data, and allowing them to understand uh, the full impact. So I believe that the findings from the, from the study, the claims study and certainly the, the provider and payer surveys are quite relevant and uh, consistent.
0: Another uh, aspect of study results reported, peak levels of telehealth um, uh, varied widely among states, anywhere from 74.9% in Massachusetts, for example, at 25% in Mississippi. Um, does this reflect, do you think, disparities across states for telehealth reimbursement and parity prior to COVID?
2: You know, that's, it's an interesting question because I, I, I don't know whether that is a relative increase or, 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 or what those percentages refer to. So, for instance, in in the state of Mississippi, the University of Mississippi already had a very strong telemedicine program going back for a number of years. So if that's a relative increase, I mean, that's that reflects more the fact that they were had a good baseline already. Um, you
1: know, these, yeah, these are, the peak, no, these are the peak actual levels. Um, yeah. And so we know some states were primed, so to speak. Um, and we know some states were hit very hard early in the pandemic. So, mm. for example, Massachusetts. And, and the Boston area in particular, was hit very hard by COVID in the very early months in March and in April. And yeah. that's certainly when the peaks occurred almost across the country. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's partly reflective of, of the pandemic itself, but also of a certain degree of readiness. Um, but you're right, Tori, that we did find, e- even going out through the rest of the year and into the last quarter of 2020, Uh, there's significant variation. Um, And I think that's what we're learning about. You know, our goal was to report what's there. Um, And we do probably need more inquiry about the causes or what's possible. Uh, So we're, uh, we certainly don't have all the answers and we're hoping that these data do stimulate uh, introspection and, uh, and a bit of a wrestling about what's possible. When we see Peak use seventy four percent Massachusetts. That means it's possible for physicians and patients to engage at that level. Um, whether that's actually sustainable in the you know in the future or not, uh, hard to know. But uh, pretty amazing to see how the healthcare system, both patients and physicians, responded once they were free to engage. And so that's one of the exciting things about about this opportunity to learn is that. All the rules were suspended, so to speak, and it was just good doctors and good patients making decisions about what worked uh, for them in their environment um, uh, at, at a time of great need.
0: So this leads me to my next question, and, and um, thank you for the research uh, and and uh, you know truth in scientific communications, and, and you're taking the time. Um, to have a a frank discussion with us today. But um, how do you maintain now continued virtual broad access to telehealth when patients are being encouraged to now book in-person appointments to get their annual checkups back on track? And we're hearing commercials now about scheduling dental visits and cancer prevention screenings um, what are the best practices that have emerged for when to use telehealth?
2: Effects, why don't you handle that from a primary care perspective? And then I can add some of the specialty. Sure. Um,
1: and, uh, again, from my own practice, certainly back in, I, I, uh, practice in Boston's back in, uh, April and May of 2020, I was certainly at the 74% or maybe higher for telehealth. And now, uh, you know, this year and year plus later, I'm probably at the 30% range. So um, maybe my practice is kind of a a textbook example of this, this ebb and flow uh, or this spike and then this ebbing, and we're all wondering what is going to be the new normal going forward. Um, we're learning quickly, and uh, this current year, 2021, is I think a continued year of experimentation to try to figure out uh, what's best for patients. I think as long as we keep that as our goal is what's best for patients and uh, what is appropriate in a, in a flexible environment so that a doctor and patient can make the best decisions for that patient. Uh, I certainly have some patients who, who uh, prefer uh, face-to-face visits. Uh, have many that didn't realize how much good could occur from telehealth. And so we're, we're fine. I'm finding that a mix is, is probably going to turn out to be the best for most patients. Uh, One, we do have three smaller case studies that we're now finishing up from the data set. One is in mental health and will soon to be published. Another is in diabetes and another uh, is in pregnancy. And, I think the best practices uh, vary considerably specialty to specialty and even diagnoses to diagnoses. Uh, We're trying to actually understand what, what ratio of face-to-face and telehealth visits makes sense for diabetes care, for example. And it's pretty clear that um, a mix is like, likely to be, to be the best. So I'm not uh, worried at all that patients uh, need to have face-to-face visits. In fact, it's, it's pretty evident that telehealth has limitations, particularly when it comes to the physical exam, of course. Um, and so uh, I just, uh, I'm really excited about about what's coming. And we hope to be able to be part of uh, spreading the story about what is good care, what's possible. Uh, the thing I'm most worried about, honestly, is having insurers start to limit uh, the, the coverage. Uh, we're worried certainly about individuals that may have uh, limited access to smartphones and computers and broadband. And so it would be a big worry, a big concern if some patients didn't have access to adequate telehealth going forward.
2: Yeah, i think I think those are important points. And, and, you know, the, the things that I'm seeing in, in my practice are that very much to FX's point, uh, you patients are going to have preferences one way or the other. And, and in some respects we will need to respond to understanding a patient's preferences. And if they truly just value that, that in-person experience, um, uh we need to we need to meet the needs that way uh when it's appropriate and and if they prefer doing it remotely and we can do it remotely for that given need, we have to match that. I have many of the patients that I've seen with with the specific diagnoses that I take care of as a cardiologist who have now uh kind of converted their checkup evaluation for their cardiac position to to preferring it to be done remotely if at all possible, which means I need to take advantage of being able to upload the echocardiogram or imaging studies they had at their local hospital, uh, local office, and make sure that I can view that and that it has the adequate information. And if that if that's the case and I can interview the patient and talk to them and they're stable, then that's that's going to be much more convenient for the patient um, uh, to do it that way. There are other patients that, that just don't have access to the the quality diagnostics that you might need. And and those patients just based on, um, where they may live might, might still need to come for the in-person checkup, particularly if their health status is changing. Um, so, so, um, but it's, it's going to be a combination of patient preference, uh, condition being managed, uh, The stability or lack thereof of the condition that we are managing will all determine whether an individual patient um, is is best served in this moment by a remote option versus an in-person option.
0: Thank you, Steve. Now, uh, this next question, and and try not to get ahead of me because it's kind of a two-parter. What would you say the top three innovations in telehealth were since January of 2020? And the second part is, what do you think the next three innovations might be by the end of 2022? Who wants to take that <laughs> one first?
2: Well, I, th- I think that's an interesting question and, and I'm sure FX will have his own insights to this, but you know, actually that timescale that the innovations we're gonna see at the end of 2022 are probably already in flight now. Um, because the, the timescale between people having ideas and getting them implemented in our practice is is actually on a much longer timescale than that. But I, I obviously the 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 big the big change in healthcare delivery that occurred over 2020 was the the use of video and telephone visits for patients to get their care. That's probably the, the, the biggest impact we had. Uh, in our in the telehealth impact study, it was you know the number one uh, remote care option that was utilized. And but just the realization, as FX had put it before, that patients suddenly realize they could get their care this way, and now they're they're going to be demanding it going forward. Unless there's something going on, I think is 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 the important thing. What I think is going to have a bigger role in the future, but we were actually utilizing it Mayo before then is something that we call remote patient monitoring, where we use devices in the patient's home to monitor things like their blood pressure, pulse rate, weight, oxygen saturation, um, uh, those types of things. And the the data is automatically uploaded to the care team's medical record. and, And the team can monitor that, have alert values set so that if someone's health path health journey is starting to deviate from what's expected, we can do an earlier lower touch intervention with that patient to keep them from deteriorating further. And, and we saw, we, we were monitoring uh, you know, close to 1200 patients a day in their own homes using these types of tools uh, during 2020. And we saw some, and it's a study it's soon to be published some very significant improvements in healthcare outcomes from those patients being monitored versus those that weren't. So the ability for the patient to have lower touch but continuous uh, oversight by their care team is, is going to be a big uh, change in healthcare going forward, particularly if we look even further down the road and you start to talk about the machine learning or artificial intelligence that might go into detecting things that are changing about a patient even before we see you know, big changes in pulse rate or blood pressure, for instance. I think that's that's really going to be something that's, that's going to be a big change. And then lastly, also putting some of those cares for lower acuity situations into the patient's hands. So what we call facilitated self-care. So it's a lower touch version of that where the patient can check in, they have some daily or weekly uh activities they're supposed to do and if they can't do it or they have questions they have an ability to 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 upgrade that to an interaction with their nurse manager for instance will will help patients be in control of their own care but yet facilitated by their trusted healthcare partner so I, i i think that i think those are going to be the biggest changes we're going to see uh as the next step beyond video and telephone visits fx what do you think
1: Sure. Uh, I like to mention hospital in the home or acute care at home. Uh, Most physicians really had never heard of the concept in January of uh, 2020, but uh, many many heard about it during the pandemic. And I think it's going to be a major player going forward. When we think about, you know, how do hospitals configure their resources? Are they going to build more beds? That's a big decision, obviously. If if uh, 10 or even 20% of their bed capacity could be replaced by a telehealth in the home phenomena. That's a game changer for uh, strategic planning for the health system for sure. Uh, We know that in uh, Boston, we were able to uh, preserve precious hospital beds during the height of the pandemic because we had already started to put in place a hospital in the home uh, infrastructure. And that really, really was uh, very beneficial during the heat of the worst of the pandemic. Now that we can see what's possible, uh, that model is uh, is spreading in many, many health systems. I, I know Mayo Clinic is also, and Kaiser Permanente, for example, have a big initiative mm-hmm. in this regard. What it requires is the inclusion of more participants, for example, using paramedics and what would traditionally be a, a EMT or emergency medicine services who are used to being in the field and, and bringing technology into the home, incorporating them in a more uh, planned way to see patients and to manage, to, the, to have a uh, IV infusion capability, 24 hours a day, to have uh, a lot of the remote monitoring elements that Steve talked about uh, in place. And so these things are now becoming more ubiquitous and we start to see many models, uh, both, Uh, ambulatory, traditional ambulatory, chronic disease, and now acute care in the home. So the type of patients that would be appropriate and we serve every day now in the home is a patient that would have traditionally been hospitalized, say for pneumonia or for cellulitis or for a heart failure exacerbation or a COPD exacerbation. Uh, We know that uh, they can move safely from the emergency room back to home Uh, With their IV in place, with their oxygen in place, as long as the telehealth infrastructure is in the home and is reliable, that requires us to uh, provide uh, tools in the home to make sure the Wi-Fi is is hardened and available all the time. And then it requires the provider organization to have 24-hour coverage in a telehealth uh, center, a telehealth bunker uh, command center. Uh, that's staffed by clinicians, by nurses uh, and physicians that are able and willing to, uh, to uh, care for these patients. So it's a very different model, but it's now very apparent that this is gonna be part of our world going forward and uh, really exciting. Cause I think we can deliver better care, safer care and lower cost care uh, for our patients in need.
2: I, I agree with that completely, uh, FX. That's that. That's the spectrum of. It's not. A, it's not appointment-based care. It's it's ongoing care, and if it's a high end of acuity, you have the kind of advanced care at home model. Then you have more chronic care management in the middle, which is lower acuity and on, the, on on the lower type side. We have that facilitated self care, and that I think that those types of devices and services will make a difference going forward for all the reasons you just stated.
1: Yeah. Another. Uh, simple technology that became very useful, uh, kind of on the front end, are, were healthcare bots. So for example, a patient could log on and go through a series of questions to help make a decision about do I need, or am I appropriate to be tested for COVID? Or now we've got bots that help facilitate, uh, well, what's the best treatment for COVID? Am I appropriate, say, for monoclonal antibodies to be given as outpatient? Uh, so the use of these bots, um, I think is gonna be more apparent in the future. Now, how does that get paid for? Does a bot interaction get paid for as a separate encounter? Probably not, but it's going to be part of the information uh, collection and the triaging that will make uh, face-to-face and other telehealth delivery uh, more efficient and hopefully more accessible for patients.
0: Okay. So uh, actually, I'm, I'm checking off here, ambient AI, sensory tech, and RPM tools for our future. Let me ask you this, because you're both um, practicing co- clinicians, what do you consider the one major barrier to telehealth?
1: Oh, I can go first on that. It, I've, I've already echoed this, but my worry is that different payers will set up different rules because uh, in the clinic, I don't want to even be thinking about payers. I want to be taking care of the patient in front of me and using all the infrastructure I have, be it uh, my care team. And now my care team plus technology enabled care. Uh, so my worry is having a, f- uh, a fracturing, so to speak of the regulatory and payment system, which, you know, may, may be inevitable, but I think right now we need to be, you uh, Voicing the benefits of having consistency in this regard. That, so that's my number one. The second is uh, inaccessibility of technology for patients, and uh, and there are pockets both in the urban environment and the suburban and the rural where uh, where broadband, reliable broadband access is not is not the norm. So we need to be thinking about our most vulnerable uh, patients to make sure. Uh, we we have what's reasonable and and fair going forward.
2: Yeah, I think that as a, as a, again, as a specialist who has a large referral practice, it actually is, is not that different. The the, the biggest barrier for us will be the uh, uh, licensure regulations, which are uh, governed on a state by state level, uh, which might limit access uh, to people who are looking to get expert care at mayo clinic or at some other specialty center but they don't happen to live in that state if we revert to the pre-pandemic uh regulatory environment much of that will have to uh, be in person again rather than remote and or, or trying to figure out ways to 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 influence that and, and that's a, it's a challenge um for us for sure it, it kind of doesn't make sense when you think about it i mean i'm I have a state of Minnesota driver's license, but I'm allowed to drive anywhere in the world because I have that driver's license. But yet I can't cross, I can't practice medicine, which is much more consistent in terms of the healthcare needs of the patient across the state line, uh, even though I actually have 20 state medical licenses. So, so um, uh, I think that's going to be the bigger, bigger challenge for specialty and referral based care. The, the reimbursement landscape is is definitely uh, going to be part of it as well. But I think that, and FX said this before, if we all focus on delivering the care that's best for the patient by whichever means that happens, I think in the long term, the, the reimbursement should follow, particularly if studies like like the telehealth impact study and the follow-on studies looking at, at uh, value for care delivered prove the value in that care, then I think that will eventually write itself. I guess the question will be how long can hospital service systems uh, survive financially until reimbursement catches up to the the needs and demands of of the patients.
0: So were there any surprises in the diagnostic classifications most reported in uh, in the study?
1: I think we saw what many did and I think were... Probably initially surprised, but became apparent that this was the challenge before us was that behavioral and mental health diagnoses uh, had such a very large uh, and immediate uptake in telehealth uh, was was quite quite a uh, quite a phenomena, and it's it, it seemed, it's now seems so logical because we know uh, tele based care is quite logical for behavioral health, particularly for counseling. Uh, The diagnoses specifically within behavioral health that spiked were anxiety uh, and mood disorders, uh, depression, et cetera. And so these were real problems and continue to be during during the pandemic, exacerbating uh, patients with chronic illness as well as uh, new diagnoses of anxiety uh, that related uh, in part to the pandemic itself. So I think behavioral mental health uh, We're, we're, you know, several times higher than any other category of diagnosis grouping. And uh, as even now, later in the pandemic, mental health continues to be uh, the highest diagnosis area uh, for the use of telehealth.
0: Uh, There were some platforms, uh, which were the top three platforms reported as most used in the uh, in the research.
1: Well, it's it's interesting to even use the word platform because we think we did ask a question in the survey of providers of physicians. We we asked what were the what were the platforms that that patients use primarily, uh, and Zoom was number one. Mm. Uh, over thirty percent of practices were using Zoom. Uh, the next was audio only. Again. Around, right around 30% we were using telephone. Now, most practices use a mix of technology platforms or devices to deliver telehealth. So these aren't exclusive, but Zoom was high, audio only, pretty much ubiquitous. Uh, there was another platform called DoxyMe and another one called Doximity uh, that were each over 20% of use. And FaceTime was also high in the uh, high teens, uh, but EHR telehealth modules were actually lower down, uh, 17 to 18 percent. This was this, however, was in the summer of 2020, so early in the pandemic. And I think if we were to take that same survey now, we would probably see more uh, EHR uh, modules showing up. In fact, even when we did the patient survey in uh, December, Jan- December 2020 to January. 2021 when patients reported what did they what what how did they connect uh 30 said that they were using their EHR uh solution or the, the EHR that their physician was using at least that was their perception of what they were what they were using so it has been a very dynamic process of what technology was available and familiar I think what we're learning here is that uh we need that there is connectivity with some of these uh commercial off the shelf, so to speak, technologies. We need to make sure that privacy and security are maintained going forward or, or introduced into those platforms. Um, and that familiarity with the platform is key for its usability, both for patients and for clinicians.
2: Yeah, I think I think, that, I think that's right, Fex. I mean, I just wanted to, to point out and, and is that some of those more common consumer-based platforms aren't necessarily HIPAA compliant um, but that, but enforcement of HIPAA compliance was relaxed in 2020 to allow patients to be able to connect. Um, so you think about some of the FaceTimes and, and those types of things, which aren't which aren't necessarily uh, HIPAA compliant in the background where, whereas for instance, Zoom has both a HIPAA compliant and a, a non HIPAA compliant one but if the hospital system is using it, that's better. But so we'll see some shifts that way as we go back into the post public health emergency environment and HIPAA enforcement being there more significantly. And then I think uh, to your point, I mean, ultimately from a user experience standpoint, both on the provider side, as well as the patient side, it will be more effective if it's part of the EHR environment. Now that doesn't mean the EHR company itself has to develop a video platform, but rather they need to make their EHR able to connect with any number of video clients that are HIPAA compliant out there that a given healthcare system might choose to use, but having those embedded within the EHRs right in the workflows for both the patient and the provider will, will uh, make a better experience for all.
0: Which speaks to um, interoperability as well. Um, Let me, let me ask you this. There are millions of uninsured patients in the United States. What is their perspective on telehealth and what are your research plans for this target in future?
1: Uh, Well, it's certainly a high risk population and there is the potential that uninsured persons could be left even further behind in the healthcare marketplace. Uh, So I think uh, research in this area is difficult because we typically don't get traditional claims for uninsured persons. And so uh, it's gonna take some novel study design to to actually find out how these patients are being served and whether telehealth is playing a role. Uh, This certainly is another reason why audio only or telephone based care is important to, to make sure we're reaching populations at greatest risk. So uh, I think study designs for uninsured will need to be very thoughtful. Uh, who's gonna pay for that type of research is another question. I think it is gonna be up to uh, both government as well as foundations to, to uh, be thinking and covering that type of research. But uh, right now uh, we're very interested in uh, working with foundations and government funders for, for a variety of different telehealth uh, studies, and so I'm hoping that the listeners to this uh, to this interview may uh, be able to get in touch with us and uh, and help us reach uh, the potential for for new studies in the next year or two. We
0: will will we will help you do exactly that. FX. <laughs> um, so, how does telehealth? And this is this is the big question. How does telehealth reduce market? Costs. Where are the opportunities for efficiencies, and and what are we looking at in terms of the timeline turnaround?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and you know again, it still remains to be answered in some degree. But but telehealth provides us more options for right-sizing the the interaction with a patient based on the needs they have at their time, uh, which can have you know we talk about the market being. The healthcare system. If I can take care of a patient with a shorter appointment visit, it's done virtually. That means I have more longer appointment visits for patients who have more complicated things that they need to come into my office to see me for, or for complicated testing. Likewise, if the patient doesn't have to come for testing at Mayo Clinic, that means that that MR or that CT scan or that echocardiogram slot is available for someone else who does need it, and so it allows us again for right sizing. The testing and, and and time spent to the needs of the patients, and a larger societal cost. If you know telehealth provides patients to not have to take a half day off of school or work or their life in order to get in and get care, and so there's less time away from work, less time away from school. Um, so I think we have to broaden our lens both in time frame and in value measurements to truly uh, understand and appreciate the the true value of of telemedicine options.
1: I think when you think about research design, um, it's quite possible that uh, doing a true randomized controlled trial where you have some patients receiving telehealth and another population that's not getting any telehealth, say for heart failure or acute care or inpatient, inpatient care. These are going to be pretty difficult studies to do because now clinicians know these are, these treatment options are out there. So actually doing the research design is, is difficult. Uh, but it's, it's pretty obvious that for my diabetic patient, if I can, uh, see them say three times in the office and three times with telehealth visit over the year, it's going to be, uh, probably better care than if I'm only able to see them three times with a face-to-face visit. I, and if I can additionally communicate with them with remote patient monitoring and be able to get their data on their blood sugars their blood pressure in between, we're going to be able to uh, hopefully get better glycemic control and potentially, you know, help prevent their progression to renal disease or eye disease over the longer term. So the, the real value proposition is in, higher quality care and better patient satisfaction and, uh, and better long-term outcomes, which will take time for us to actually measure.
0: I'm not sure we have that time since healthcare is at 18% of GDP <laughs> right now. <laughs> Alrighty, um, we're almost done here. We're in the home stretch. The uh, research article claims a foundational state for telehealth in the United States healthcare marketplace. And you've proposed uh, a national digital strategy for healthcare in the U.S. So what's included, and again, in what time frame?
1: Well, thank you, Troy. I think you're, you're referring then to the, to the national uh, health digital strategy that MITRE yes. Corporation has uh, recently uh, released. And to some extent, it's learning learnings that we have from the pandemic and a challenge, you know, going forward to both the public and private sectors of what's possible. And we've articulated six different goals of effective digital care going forward. Uh, those include, for example, the need for universal broadband, the need to have a sustained healthcare workforce that is, uh, trained in the ways of digital technology and have access to that, uh, that we need to have, uh, Uh, data exchange architecture, that we need data interoperability that for many years we've been laying the groundwork for, but now it's so apparent that we need to be able to uh, have data exchange between EHRs and between health systems to make care efficient. I think the, for example, just the knowledge about who's been vaccinated has been so much better now with COVID vaccine than we ever had before with flu, because there's, there's been a real focus on making sure vaccine registries around the country are are communicating it's it's been a game changer um, and so i think this integrated uh, uh, concept of digital care is going to take uh, is going to take work on an infrastructure side steve also mentioned the licensure of physicians and other mm. licensed care professionals all these really need to be coordinated to think about what's best for the patient but i think if we if we do keep that as our, as our north star, what what's in the patient's best interest, we'll be able to reconstruct and, uh, and and guide us forward. And I think we should do be able to do it in an accelerated fashion. People realize if you can make a vaccine in a year, why can't we get telehealth to work for everybody within a year? We've been working on telehealth for twenty plus years, to be honest with you, and we knew it's there, but really it was never taken out and used in a way that's uh, that's that's. Uh, it expresses the best care for patients. So I'm excited about this, but it's going to take education and initiative and a strategy that we can all uh, work towards. So we're hoping that our digital health strategy gets embraced uh, wide and deep and that we've started to stimulate some uh, significant conversations about what's possible.
0: And we'll be talking about that at, at conv 2X, I'm, I'm sure, uh, in November FX. So last question for you. What's the subject or hypothesis? um, And you may have mentioned this a bit earlier of the next study in your three-part research series. What should the market expect? Well,
1: well, as I mentioned, we do have three uh, case studies coming out: uh, behavioral health, uh, pregnancy, and diabetes. And so, and and as Steve pointed out, you know, the the the, the real excitement is in the is in the details of the clinical. Uh, different clinical case types and his area and heart failure and cardiovascular care couldn't, it couldn't be more exciting. So I think uh, the stories coming forward are going to be, how do we take care of patients with specific clinical problems? And, and I think that's where it's going to become obvious that there's a, there's going to be a match between certain digital capabilities um, and certain patient groups that uh, w- we all want to uh, seek and uh and then embrace for our workflows for best practice, and then hopefully uh, create a reimbursement environment that uh, that enables us to do the best thing for our patients.
2: That's, that, that's exactly right, FX. I think that understanding individual diagnosis types that lend themselves best to healthcare, understanding the impact to outcomes and uh, the appropriate measures of value uh, in a larger uh, lens is really where we're gonna see the research shift going forward.
0: Thank you both gentlemen. This is a, uh, just a great way to end our discussion with these final uh, comments. I'm sure the audience will look forward to your unveiling those results soon. And it's great to have research that informs and guides strategic undertakings for the marketplace. Thank you again for your time. I hope these insights are helpful to listeners and policy leadership. Thank you again.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Tori.
0: We appreciate your tuning in to TMT's unscripted podcast featuring Dr. Francis Campion, Principal Digital Health Analyst at the MITRE Corporation, and Dr. Steve Oman, Medical Director, Digital Products and Product Platform Strategy at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Stay tuned for more in this three-part study series released from the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition. For more information, visit their site at c19hcc.org. To read the study research article, Visit Telehealth and Medicine Today Open Access Journal. And if you have a comment about the program, please send an email to info at partnersindigitalhealth.com. Thanks for listening to Unscripted from TMT.